Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Right now, we're in our Advent series, where we look at how Jesus is our hope, peace, joy, and love. Calvary West, good morning and uh, welcome. It's good to be with you today. I don't know if you felt like I did this morning with the rain and the thunder and like, wouldn't this be an excellent day to just be in bed all day long, right? I was dragon this morning and then I come into the first service and Cam's like two new songs that you don't know how to sing and I was like bro today is not the day oh my gosh during the first service I think I sang every part of that timing of the new songs like wrong so Cam all of a sudden will get quiet and I'm like shouting in the front you know I'm like oh my gosh killing me but it is uh, it's good to be with you my name is Ryan I'm on the staff team here at Calvary West and um if we have not met yet, I'd love to say hello after the service, get to know you and your family, and uh, just talk to you a little bit about what God's doing here at Calvary West. We believe that God wants Calvary West to be a place of belonging and hope. We say belonging and we mean, man, we want every person who comes here to be warmly welcomed and treated like family. I hope that's been your experience already this morning. And then hope, we want this to be a place where people are connected to the help and the hope that only God can provide. We believe that's what God is creating here, that's what he's doing here. And that's what we want you to experience here, whether it's your very first Sunday or you've been coming here every uh, week since 2009 when we first opened. And so my prayer this morning is that we would have an encounter with Jesus that changes everything for us, that changes, man, today, that changes this week, and maybe that changes our whole lives. Kids, we want you to have an encounter like that this morning as well. If you're in kindergarten first or second grade, you can head on back to Kids Connect. You see Miss Jennifer back there, she's waiting on you. Kids Connect is a time for our kids, if you're a guest and you're not sure, time for our kids in kindergarten, first and second, to connect with God and each other on their level. Your kids are welcome to go. Your kids are welcome to stay with you throughout the service as well. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew's gospel account, the second chapter. So you can go ahead and open up in your Bible there this morning. Um, This year, in the run-up to Christmas, we are talking through the themes of Advent. That's what this season is, the Advent season, this time of year when Christians all over the world are kind of focusing in on the same thing, right? The, uh, we're remembering the arrival of Jesus in the first place. Advent means arrival or beginning. And so we're remembering Jesus's arrival into the world in the, in the first place. We're celebrating, we're remembering and celebrating the work that God accomplished through him. And then we're looking forward to when Jesus arrives again in glory and power to fully and finally restore all things to God. And so far in the series, we've talked about hope and we've talked about peace. And hope is that confident expectation that God will keep his promises. It's a confident expectation that God will keep his promises. And so, man, if I'm a hopeful person in the biblical way of speaking, if I'm a hopeful person, I've got my heart set in the future. I long for that day when everything is set right. I long for that day when all people who trust Jesus are face-to-face with God. But I've got my mind set on the past. The, the anchor for my hope is in the past. It's what God has already done for me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if I have my heart in the future, my head in the past, then I can be grounded in the present, live with hope, even in the midst of difficult and sometimes even hopeless circumstances. That's the difference that biblical hope can make. And then last week we talked about peace, the end of hostility and the beginning of wholeness, the end of hostility and the beginning 
of wholeness. That starts vertically between us and God, and then it can extend out to others horizontally. People that we know, people that we care about, people that we work with. But it's got to start with God first. And that peace we saw comes from humility. James mentioned that in chapter 4, right? Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, or to the point of death, even death on a cross. He made himself absolutely as low as he could so that we could have peace with God. And in the same way, if we want to experience peace with God and peace with others, then God would say, hey, humble yourself as well in the same way that Jesus did. And so the way to, uh, to wholeness is through humility. And that brings us to week three. The theme for this week is joy. Now, again, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves in this series. So if you're doing the Advent study at home or Advent candles, today is peace. We studied that last week so we could be meditating and thinking leading up to today. And next Sunday will be joy. We're studying joy today so we can be leading up to it. So first thing we got to do if we're going to talk about joy is just answer the question like what counts as joy? What does it mean to have joy? What does it mean to experience joy? And I think that's a good question to start with because it seems like, at least to me, in our culture here in the modern West, when I think about what the culture would say would lead me to joy and happiness and what the Bible would say would lead me to joy and happiness, those are two very different things. And so we've got these two competing messages that we're hearing all the time, one from the culture and one from the Scripture about what it means to experience joy. And we can say joy and happiness interchangeably. Uh, the Bible talks about both of those things, and so we'll talk about both of them, not trying to make a distinction between them today. The difference isn't, you know, this is joy and this is happiness. The difference is this is what the culture says is joy and will lead to happiness. And this is what the Scripture says on the other hand. So that's the, that's the difference. What's the vision, right, for human flourishing is at the heart of this? What constitutes the good life? And what, we, what we're going to see is that the culture and the Scripture have a different perspective on that. Now, I'm sure you guys are all thinking back to April 4th, 2001 right now, just as I say joy and happiness. That's just on the front of your mind. That's the last time I preached about this. And so uh, you're thinking it, right? I know. I don't even have to probably refresh us with notes. Um, I'd completely forgotten that we had talked about this before. And I was talking with Will this week, and he was like, you know, we preached about like happiness before. It was during this series, and this was the title of our message. And I was like, how do you know that? You know, like, how do you remember that? I cannot remember what I had for breakfast. And so I just want to, I do want to go back to that, uh, that, that message, because we did just kind of draw out the distinction a little bit between the two things. So cultural vision for joy and happiness is rooted in the external. It's rooted in the external. We experience that at the level of our circumstances. Okay, so that includes a couple of different ways of experiencing happiness. First, we talked about was happiness as indulgence. This is the sense that I get to do what I want, when I want, as much as I want. And if I can do that, then I can be happy. I get to choose for myself. Nobody's going to tell me no. Nobody's going to stand in my way. It's whatever I want, whenever I want it. And that will lead me to true happiness. Now, even saying that, I'm sure some of you are thinking of ways that you've done that before, right? and the ways that that has led you to disaster before. But we all do it. We all do that. Happiness as indulgence. As long as nobody tells me no and I get whatever I want, then I will be happy, right? Kids think like this, and then as grown-ups, we just continue right on in that. Another way we do this is happiness as performance, which is all about achievement, right? Advancement, getting as close as you can to perfection, and through that achievement, earning love and respect 
and acceptance. We go, man, I will be happy if the people around me respect me, if they see what I've accomplished and they look up to me, if my kids look up to me, if my coworkers look up to me, I will, I will be happy then. And we do this religiously also, right, with God. If I can know that God loves me and accepts me, then I can be happy in my life. I've just got to do enough to secure his love and acceptance, and then I can know, then I can rest, then I'll be settled in this knowledge that I'm good, and so I can be happy. So happiness as indulgence, happiness as performance. The biblical vision, though, for joy and happiness, experiencing those things, human flourishing and fulfillment, it's not about indulgence or performance, it's about relationship. And the biblical vision, what we see in the Scripture when it comes to joy and happiness, is that happiness, joy, is something rooted in the internal and experienced at the level of the heart. It's rooted in the internal. It's experienced at the level of the heart. This is about satisfaction for our souls. Jesus talks about this a little bit in John chapter 7 where he says, and I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly. Have it to the fullest. That type of life is the type of life, the type of satisfaction that the Scripture wants for us. It's about the deepest, right, and truest and best longings of our hearts to be fulfilled in Christ. And when our souls are satisfied, when our lives are full in that way, when our longings are met, we no longer go looking for joy and happiness in all of these external things. We're already experiencing it in the heart because of our relationship with God through Jesus. And so the search then for joy and happiness is over when the relationship with God through Jesus takes over. It was interesting, I was reading this week and kind of rereading through those notes from 2021 and then looking at some stuff. And I came back across, <clears throat> oh, y'all got to anticipate when I do that and mute my mic. That was gross. <clears throat> my son Marshall loves to like try to like get up congestion, we'll say it. And it drives Meredith nuts, like, because he never does get anything up. He just makes the noise, you know, it's like guttural, you know. You're welcome, guys. I know that's why you came this morning. What are we talking about? Where's... So it's called the Harvard Happiness Project. This is uh, Harvard Medical School started this in 1938. And the question was like, what leads to true satisfaction with people? What leads to happiness, to joy, to a sense of fulfillment in people's lives? They started tracking this cohort of people in 1938. They tracked them all the way through 2017. So almost 80 years of data. And then they expanded it too. It, wasn't, it started as this group of Harvard undergrads. I think they were sophomores when it started. And then it expanded. It was like their kids and then their grandkids after that that they also tracked. And then it was people outside of that community as well from the Boston area uh, that they tracked and trying to find out, like trying to get at the core of what makes people happy and feel like they are flourishing in their lives. And after 80 years of data, this is the summary of what they found. Close relationships, more than money or fame. So you think about that more than like being able to indulge in whatever you want because you've got all the money to do it. And more than fame, the recognition, right, for your achievements, more than money, more than fame, more than indulgence, more than performance. It's close relationships are what keep people happy throughout their lives. Those ties protect people from life's discontents, help to delay physical and mental decline, 
and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, and even genetics. As I looked at that and read that, you know, there's lots of articles about it that came out when it was first published, but just thinking, man, we look in all the wrong places for joy and happiness, don't we? We tend to look in all the wrong places for joy and happiness in our lives. And it follows then that where we're looking for joy and happiness, what we're looking for in joy and happiness will affect the way that we interpret our circumstances, right? If what you're looking for, if what you want most, if what you believe will get you to the ideal version of the good life, you think, man, if only I had this, or I can't live without that, whatever your vision of the good life is, if it's the cultural vision for joy and for happiness, right? This right mix of circumstances, the right things, the right people, the right times, the right achievements, the right mixture of indulgence and performance, then things in life are going to hit you a certain way. And essentially, you could track it like this. When things are up, when things are good, then you feel good. And when things are down, you feel bad. Right? If what you're looking for is joy and happiness out there externally in your circumstances, then when circumstances are good, you're good. You feel that joy and happiness. When circumstances are bad and something bad happens and you're suffering and there's tragedy or hardship, man, then you are going to feel way, way down. But if what you want, what you're looking for in life, what you think constitutes the good life is the biblical vision for joy and happiness, not based on your circumstances, but based on a relationship with God through Jesus, then you can experience those exact same things in your life, these same exact details, the same exact circumstances, and they will hit you in a completely different way. And that's the dynamic that we're going to see this morning in the Scripture in Matthew 2. So let's look at that. Matthew 2, the first 12 verses. This is what the Scripture says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it was stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Father, would you meet with us this morning? God, would you be gracious? We're all searching for joy. We're all searching for happiness. God, often in all the wrong places. So Father, would you help us this morning from the Scriptures, help us to understand what it means to have true joy and happiness, where it can be found, God, and what it would mean to pursue that through Jesus. God, I pray that you would move in power this morning, the power of your Word and the power of your Spirit. God, would you lead and guide us 
as you're at work. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Matthew 2, we've got these two distinct groups of people. We've got the Magi on the one hand, and then King Herod and people in Jerusalem on the other hand. And we're going to get to see them have two very different responses to the exact same situation. The exact same news comes to both groups, and they have totally different responses to that news. The King Herod, mentioned here in Matthew 2, is Herod the Great. He was the first of four Herods, or rulers from his family, to rule in Judea. And uh, Herod the Great was, he was the king there long before Jesus ever came on the scene. His rule started around A.D., uh, sorry, not A.D., gosh, B.C., before uh, Jesus, uh, about 40 or 41. So like four decades of rule in Judea, in the area where Jerusalem was, before Jesus ever came on the scene. And his nickname was King of the Jews. Okay, so that's what people called him. That's what he did. He ruled there on behalf of Rome. And his big job, his task was to keep the peace between Rome and this Roman colony outpost, Judea. And so he had a couple of different levers of power that he could push to accomplish that. He could help build kind of goodwill with the people there. And man, the better things were for them, the less they would want to rebel against Rome, right? The less that they would have a desire to fight back against Roman rule. And uh, one of the ways that he did that was by lowering taxes and investing in the temple there in Jerusalem. He made it really nice. So it's like, hey, Rome cares about you. We love you. Low taxes. It's great. You know, pro-growth environment. So, you know, they, they've got that going for them. He's got that going for him, building goodwill. And then on the other hand, his other lever of power is fear. And so he can also do that. And he can do almost anything he wants as the king there and as the representative of Rome. And so we see him pushing that lever also during his rule where if you opposed him at all, you were basically just executed. Members of his own family, Members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling elite in uh, Jewish society, were if they opposed King Herod, they would just be killed off. And so Herod was a smart guy. A, I mean, in that way, he's a good leader. He did some of both, right? Make them not want to rebel and then make them fear rebelling. And that's how he kept the peace in Judea. The problem was that the Israelites didn't want to be ruled by Rome. And so there were always these little hot spots popping up and rebellions that were forming. And so he had his work cut out for him. Even, even as he tried to keep things steady, his position was always at stake because that was his job, his responsibility. And if he couldn't do it, guess what happened to him? He was gone as well. And so King Herod would be kind of our poster child for pursuing that cultural vision for the good life, the right mix of circumstances at the right time. For him, that's being the king, that's ruling, that's having peace in the land of Judea. And that's him being good with Rome as well. That's what he wants the most in his life. That's what he is seeking. And he'll do anything, good or evil, to make sure that it happens. Unfortunately for him, because he's in that tough spot and he's the link between Rome and Judea, like his, his situation, his status is never safe. It's always at risk. As long as there's risk of rebellion, then he is at risk in his position as well. And then on the other side, we've got the Magi. And the Magi are this group of people from the east, probably Persia. And they're like, man, they're pursuing wisdom. They interpret dreams and omens, astrological signs, the stars. But the thing that they want most is just the pursuit of truth and of wisdom. They show up several times throughout the Old Testament, actually have interactions with God, uh, God's people, the Israelites. They would have been aware 
of at least some of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, or not about Jesus specifically, but about a coming Messiah. They would have been aware of those, kind of tucked those away for later in their pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and truth. So that's the two different groups. They're looking for two very different things, right? That's what's important. That's going to drive their response here to the same situation, to the same, uh, the, the birth of Jesus. So we're going to look just a little bit at how each of them respond to this news that Jesus has been born. Look at verse 3 with me. Herod hears this news from the Magi. Where's this one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The sense of the word disturbed, your, your scripture may say troubled, right? He was troubled. It's this inner unrest based on external circumstances. So what's happening out here is concerning him. And so he has lost any sense of peace, tranquility, joy, happiness that he might have had in here. It's gone for him. And so he's got this like turmoil now. He's troubled. He's disturbed. And you can kind of understand that, right? That he would feel threatened. Imagine being the king in a place for four decades. You are the king sitting on the throne. Everyone knows you as the king, the king of the Jews. And then these guys walk in and they're, as you're sitting on the throne, they're like, hey, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And you're just like, well... It's me, you know, and they're like, no, no, not you, the new one. Where is he? And you can imagine how that would hit him and how circumstances in your life often hit you when you're off guard, you're not, you're not prepared for it. And then all of a sudden, everything is just thrown into chaos internally. That's what happens for Herod. I think disturbed is probably a euphemism. He's threatened in that moment. His status is threatened. His circumstances are threatened. Everything is at stake for him right now because of what he has just heard. And so he, he's suspicious. King Herod is disturbed about Jesus. He's suspicious about what they say. And he responds with evil. He responds to that with evil. Right? He's storing up in his heart insecurity, fear, suspicion, right? doubt, uh, knowledge like that, man, if this goes wrong, that's it for me. All of that is bubbling up with him. And so listen to how uh, he responds to this. He, he says two different things, or he says something different than what he ends up doing, I should say. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, this is what the prophets say. He's getting caught up on all that. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out the exact time the star had appeared. He sends them out and he says, go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now that's what he's saying with his mouth, but what he's storing up in his heart is very different, right? He's not storing up, uh, you know, like joy in his heart about this news. He's storing up doubt, trouble, suspicion, insecurity, fear. And then we're going to see, man, what is stored up in his heart is going to come out in his life. It has to. Skip down to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi because they didn't go back to him, they didn't make a report to him, and eventually, he, I mean, we're reading this all in a couple of paragraphs, but this would have played out over weeks and months. He's, he realizes he's been outwitted. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. He stores up trouble. 
he brings out evil. He stores up suspicion. He brings out murder. He stores up insecurity. He brings out chaos into his real life. The Magi, though, have a very different response. We see that in verse 9. They hear, they hear from the king. They go on their way. The star continues to lead them. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And then they give these gifts in a way of demonstrating their worship and their love for him. The Magi are overjoyed about Jesus, and so they respond with worship. Tim Keller was talking about their response, and he said, man, they must have had some kind of special revelation from God. Because these are not Jewish people who are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They heard it's Jesus, and so they go and worship him. These are people from some other place with other customs, other traditions. All we know is that they cared about wisdom and truth and knowledge. And then God must have revealed to them, right, that, hey, this is the one who is the divine embodiment of wisdom and truth and knowledge. And so when they come to him, they worship him. J.C. Ryle described their response like this. He said, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no wise words out of his mouth. They saw nothing but a newborn infant on the lap of his mother, but they worshiped him. No greater faith than this can be found in the whole volume of the Bible. No greater faith. The Magi are overjoyed about Jesus, and so they worship him. That's easy for us to compare and contrast these two different responses to the same thing, right? Herod, seeking joy and happiness through his circumstances, he's terrified that Jesus' arrival means a change to what is his norm. Like his everyday, his life will be upended if what the Magi say is true, that there is this other king of the Jews. And so he totally freaks out. He does everything he can then to put an end to Jesus before Jesus can put an end to what he loves, which is the life that he has. The Magi, though, seeking wisdom and truth as the path to joy and happiness, they're overjoyed because they know, man, it can only be found in him. And so we'll go to him and we'll worship him and we'll experience true joy and happiness in him. And I think about their responses and I think like, well, what about me? Right? How do I respond to Jesus? How do I respond to news about Jesus? How even do I respond to the teachings of Jesus when I think about what they might mean for my own joy and my own happiness? I think it'd be super easy for us to go like, well, yeah, I want the biblical version, right? I believe that true joy, true, true happiness can only be found in him. And then we just write ourselves kind of a blank check to just ignore the possibility that there's something else going on in our hearts. But Tim Keller said this in his book, Hidden Christmas. He said, in every human heart then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. In every human heart, there's this little King Herod. And I wonder if you've noticed that before in your own life. Maybe it was you heard something that Jesus said and you thought, man, if I do that, if I have to do it that way, that's going to change everything for me. Right? That's not how I am right now in my marriage. That's not how I am right now with my kids. That's certainly not how I am at work. That's not how I am online. If I do it Jesus' way, it's going to mean big changes for me, and I don't know if I want that. And so you're disturbed, you're suspicious, you've got this lack of inner peace, this lack of confidence that where Jesus says is really the best way to go. I think that's easier for us than we would like to admit. 
to have that kind of suspicion when it comes to Jesus. I'll say yes, even if in my heart I'm thinking, "Mm, I don't know about that. Even if in my heart I'm worried about what the future might mean if I go that way and I follow him into that future. It might, not be, well, it might be that we love our, our current circumstances so much, we don't want to lose them. But it might also just be that, man, I know what things are like right now, and I don't know what they'll be like if I follow Jesus. And so I'll just stay with what I know, with what I'm comfortable with, instead of following Jesus to what he says is good and right and best. If I were to actually do what Jesus is telling me, things would have to change. And I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I want that. I don't know if I can handle that. Maybe it means I've got to start treating my spouse very differently than I do. Speaking to them in a different way. Interacting with them in a different way. Maybe it means something really has to change about my parenting and the way that I try to control or manipulate my children into doing what I want when I want. Maybe it means that at work, man, things are going to have to change. And I've been taking shortcuts and being unethical and I, I can't do that if I'm following Jesus. And so I'm worried about that. Maybe it's just how you treat strangers. Who knows? But I think all of us, it shouldn't be too hard. I don't think it should be too hard for us to admit, man, there are ways in which I know what I want. I know what I want for my life. I know what I want for this situation. I know what I want for this season. I know what I want. And what Jesus says is a threat to what I want in the exact same way that it would have happened for King Herod, right? What they say about Jesus is a threat to what he wants the most. And so he does everything to eliminate the threat. And you and I do the exact same things. I know what I want. I know where I'm headed. God, don't mess this up for me. Here's the reason we do that. If we don't believe that Jesus is the way to the good life, to a flourishing life, to satisfaction for our souls, right? If we don't believe that he is the way to joy and happiness, then we'll never want to follow him, right? We'll never have a desire to follow him where he leads if we don't believe that where he's going is better than where we could take ourselves. And that's where we start to pull away, right? God, I'm not sure that is better than what I already want for myself. I've got a vision for me and my family and my life, and I'm not sure that yours is better, I've got a vision for my career if you're a student. And God, I'm not sure that your vision for my career would be better. I know what I want. I know where I'm headed. I'm comfortable with that. I'm confident in that. And so God, don't get me off track. Just like Herod. If we don't believe Jesus when he says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, then following him will never seem like the path to happiness and joy. That'll seem crazy to us actually. But when we pull away from Jesus, when we refuse to follow him, here's what happens. We get stuck in this endless loop of seeking happiness through either indulgence or performance, right? Well, if it's not in my relationship with God that I'm going to be satisfied, I've got to look for it somewhere else. I want to be happy in my life. Do you not want the same thing? And so if I'm not finding it with him, I'm going to find it somewhere else. And that's what we begin to do. It's this thing. And I've got to have more and more and more of that thing. It's this activity or hobby. And I've got to do that more and more and more. And invest more and more and more in that. And learn more and more about it. And if I can get to like the pinnacle of that hobby. right? How many of you have spent thousands of dollars on golf clubs? And then they didn't work. I see wives looking at husbands right now. I know. And then they didn't work. 
And it turns out you still stink at golf, and, but it was the clubs, right? And so then you get more clubs, different clubs, better clubs, more lessons, different teacher. And you play and you play and you play. And, and let's say you get there and you're a scratch golfer. Then what? Do you not still want to shave strokes off your game? That never satisfies, does it? Say you learn everything there is to know about your hobby. Say you achieve like the highest level at your work, right? And you are, you, you are whatever. You're teacher of the year. You're employee of the month. You get the promotion. You get the raise. Do you not want that again? Do you not want that more? Do you not want that next step afterwards? When we look out there for satisfaction that can only be found with God, we will never be satisfied. That's reality. We were never meant to go skipping from one thing to the other. One experience to the next. One trip. One vacation. Right? One car. One house to the next. And experience this up when we've got it. And then this gradual down as that satisfaction fades. And then the next up as we get the next thing. And then a slide down as the satisfaction fades. Now we're meant to enjoy all of those things, right? Everything that we have in life is a blessing from God. It's meant to be enjoyed but it's not meant to be the basis of our satisfaction. It's not meant to be the basis of our joy and our happiness. And if it is, we will never be joyful. We will never be happy because those things don't last. There's always a better car that's going to come out next year. There's always a bigger house that you could build. There's always another, another hobby that you could pick up. Students, there's always a better grade that you could get or a better college that you could get into or a better team that you could make. Right? Those things never truly satisfied. But what's one thing that doesn't change? What's one thing that you can't get more of? It's the love that you have from God, the relationship that you have from him. As soon as you trust Jesus, you have all the love from God that you'll ever receive. It's all yours in Jesus immediately. And Romans 8 tells us that once we have it, it can't be taken away. There's nothing in all creation, Paul says, that can separate you from the love that God has from you in Jesus. No high, high and no low, low can separate you from the love that God has for you in Jesus. The researchers at Harvard, they, you know, they discovered something in their survey. 80 years of work to tell us what the Bible's been telling us for thousands of years. They say you and I were created for relationships. That you and I, because we are in the image of God and God is Father, Son, and Spirit, living in eternal relationship with one another, we are in His image and so you and I are hardwired for relationships as well. And it's that relationship with God through Jesus that changes everything, including down to what we look for in life, where we find our satisfaction, and what we would consider true joy and happiness. And so I want us to close this morning just like with a meditation on this question. And the question is this, am I experiencing a satisfaction in my soul that transcends my circumstances? Am I experiencing a satisfaction in my soul that transcends my circumstances? Have I broken out of the cycle of when it's up, I'm good, and when it's down, I'm bad? Or am I stuck there? Right? And my circumstances dictate my joy. What's going on in my life determines how happy I am or am not. Or am I experiencing a satisfaction in my soul that transcends all of that? To say it another way, do I believe that Jesus is the way to the good life? And that in following Him, I'll find true joy and happiness. 
Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.